I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to uh, kick off the first few weeks of this new year uh, with a sermon series on uh, the nature of the church, the body of Christ, and the value and place that it should hold in each of our lives. My uh, desire this morning is to encourage you to think biblically about church life. Um, And Romans 12 has a very, very helpful series of uh, texts that are going to assist us in uncovering the nature of our relationship to each other for the glory of God. So let's begin reading in verse 3 of Romans 12. Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, and that If you go back to Romans 1-7, you'll realize that Paul is writing to believers in the city of Rome, okay? So you have those that have been called out of the world by the gospel of Christ to become part of the church in Rome. This letter is written to a local church existing in the context of the Roman Empire in the capital city of Rome. Paul says, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophecy, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve it. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of God for his church. You know, if you were to do a study through the New Testament of the topic of the church, the body of Christ, you would find that the church is spoken of in two distinct ways. Uh, One is in Matthew 16, verse 18, when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. That is a statement about the bigger picture of what God is doing, all believers in all places at all times. We call that the unseeable or invisible church. Okay, that is every believer at all times in all places. That is not something that I have had yet the privilege of seeing. It's something that we sing about and something that we long for one day when we will see the bride of Christ, the body of Christ assembled together in one place. But this universal distinction is not how we relate to the church today. Today we understand that we relate to the church as a local church. That is, local manifestations of the work of God in what we call church is in various geographic locations. The invisible church is something that I become part of by placing faith in Christ. The local church is something I become part of by making a choice to commit myself to a local manifestation of the body of Christ where I live. And I believe this. I believe that every believer should be committed to a local church family, one that is visible, tangible, seeable, where the glory of Christ can be manifested to the world around us. The New Testament letters, if you read through the New Testament, you're going to notice that every New Testament epistle is written to a local church. So you'll find a letter from Paul to the church in 
Corinth or to the church in Galatia or to the church in Thessalonica. And the emphasis begins to build that as I read the New Testament, I understand that this is the story of the church, which is the body of Christ who came to redeem her. That's recorded in the Gospels. And then we live out a manifestation of Jesus to the world around us in the context of local church locations. So here's the question I want to ask you this morning. I want to ask you to evaluate your relationship to the local church in light of God's truth. And I don't know if you're like me, but there are certain things in my Christian experience that I need to do on a regular basis. And one of the things I like to do on a regular basis is to evaluate my relationship to the local church. What's my understanding of it? How do I value it? What is our purpose? What is our God-given function and goal as a church family? This morning, I want to seek to remind us of our responsibilities in the church. When I, when I think about church life and I think about some of the things that we do as a church family and this idea of revisiting certain topics on a regular basis, I think of, I think of it like mowing grass. Uh, there are certain topics that we need to get back to on a repeated basis and remind ourselves of the importance and place of various things in church life. So this morning, we're going to mow the grass of the local church. We're going to try to get it uh, back and see it properly the way that it ought to be because things tend to grow in it. Weeds tend to grow and areas tend to die off and we need to re-fertilize that that truth, to re-fertilize that doctrine in our minds through the Word of God. And so this morning, Paul's going to move in Romans 12 from what is high theology, Romans 1 through 11, into what we call practical theology. High theology about how we come to faith in Christ, what it means for Jew and Gentile to be joined together in this new, uh, in this new manifestation of God's work in the body of Christ. So he's going to move from high theology about our sinfulness and our Savior and sanctification into now a very practical application of that truth into our daily lives. So verse 3 kind of opens up the door for this discussion. And I want you to notice that Paul in this text begins with a caution. So we're going to work through this text in three steps. One is a caution, one is an illustration, and then the third thing will be an application of the truth that he's trying to drive home. Okay. So first of all, the caution. Paul says, by the grace given to me. And when Paul talks about the grace given to him, he means his call by God into apostleship. The means by which Paul came into this position where he has divine authority to speak authoritatively to the church. So he understands that he does not have that position as something that he grabbed, but as something that was given to him. And out of that position... He speaks to the church. And the question I want you to ask yourself this morning is, what tendency do I have that Paul seeks to confront in this passage of Scripture? Notice what he says. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think of yourself instead with sober judgment. What's my natural tendency? My natural tendency is to think too much of myself, to see myself as more important than I really am. And I think the greatest manifestation of that in my own, in my own life is, is seeing that sometimes I think I can live this life on my own. Uh, to think that I am self-sufficient. And it's this that Paul, I think, wants to confront. 
He says we shouldn't think of ourselves with an overly high self-estimation, more highly, more important, more capable individually than we really are. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Paul is not arguing that Christians should grovel, okay, that they should be self-defeating, masochist, very negative and hard on themselves. He's not saying that. All he's calling for is a realistic view of who you are in Christ, an accurate understanding, not, a, not an inflated understanding, but an accurate understanding that I was created by God to be part of something bigger than myself. And that for me to realize my ultimate and full value, I need to understand my relationship to the greater community that God, by his grace, has called me into. I, uh, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan, okay? And I did not become one this year, Okay? Uh, because they happen to have the best you know, uh, record in the NFL, etc. Et I did not say, hey, because of that, I'm going to become a fan. I've been a fan all along, okay? That's just to keep the record straight. Here's, here's the thing that's been unique about that team this year, okay? Uh, and and if, as you listen to commentators through the year, the one thing they kept talking about was this team does not have a long list of extraordinary players. It is truly a team. There are a number of average people who are deeply committed to mutual success. Okay, and for a long time throughout the season, there was success that was rooted in, 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 in the efforts of many, many different people. Now, a, a flaw was revealed a few weeks ago when Carson Wentz was injured. And the team found out that they have a weak link now. Okay, they were... They were pursuing excellence together. But all of a sudden you find out we've got a guy that is so good that without him, we're not as good as we can or should be. Okay? And, and in the analogy of looking at the Eagles, if you, if you like that analogy, uh, when, when they were functioning with a strong leader and strong components that were not above average but were average but committed... They were able to accomplish amazing things. And, and the, kind of the, the, the word on, uh, on the fanatic radio station, which I'm going to confess that I started listening to on a regular basis, uh, that was the, the word on the street. And then when Carson Wentz gets injured, there's a, a strong weakness that is revealed in the team. And suddenly they're not as good as they were. And here's, here's, here's I think, the, the, kind of the thrust of that illustration is this. As Christians, we need to make sure that each one of us is doing our part so that we as a church family can accomplish things that individually we could never do. Okay, that's why we are called the body of Christ or the family of God. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. And I live in a very individualistic culture and I have very individualistic tendencies that Paul is confronting in this text. Don't think of yourself as more capable than you actually are. And please don't understand and don't think that I think that I can do everything that I do in my Christian life on my own. I don't. There is this subtle creep that happens for me that causes me in my sinful nature to think that I am a bit better than I thought at times. Not often, but at times. And this text serves to say, God never intended you to go it alone. He never intended you to be a pious particle in the world that he created. He intended you to be part of something bigger, a member in his body, the church. And so this first caution is to not think of ourselves more highly than we we ought, but to think with sober judgment. And I, I love the way that Paul qualifies this at the end. He says, think in accordance with the faith that God gave to you. 
One of the greatest things you can do is to sit back and reevaluate your relationship with God and how you got into that relationship with God. If you think you got into a relationship with God because you're just simply smarter than other people, and when the gospel was presented to you, you understood it. And those other poor suckers didn't understand it. And that's why you made the right decision. You do not understand the gospel of God correctly. The faith to believe is a gift from God. And anyone who comes into the family of God is owing to the fact that God moved in your heart. And God opened the eyes of a blind man or woman or young person and allowed them to see something that they could not apprehend on their own. So the starting point is a place of humility. I'm in Christ. Owing nothing to my performance, owing nothing to what I've done. What he has done, we just sung, is completely done. So I don't stand in Christ as someone who needs to do just a little more to finish what Jesus started. No, done. That, that truth should be the greatest cause to accurate self-assessment. I am what I am by the grace of God. And any function I have in the church that I am capable of Effecting for the glory of God is owing to his grace poured out. That's what Paul's saying here. In accordance with the faith that God gave you. So that we all walk in deep humility. Understanding that I am part of something much more glorious than myself. And I am able in that context to see things done for the glory of God that I could never do on my own. That's the glory of the gospel. So the first thing Paul says is make sure that you have an accurate self-assessment. Don't overvalue yourself. See yourself as God sees you. I think this is why in John 13, if I was just to illustrate this, it's why Jesus Christ humbled himself and served the disciples. In John 13, Jesus says after washing their feet and they're resisting and he's saying, no, I must. He says to them, do you understand what I have done? If I, your Lord and teacher, your master and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to or you should serve one another. You see, humility is a liberating attribute. And pride is a captivating attribute. It's weird how it works. When I make less of myself, I find more joy. And when I make much of myself, I find myself in constant contention and strife. Paul here focuses on the danger of pride and the value of humility. Pride is dangerous because it isolates and stifles community. Humility unleashes selfless service. So the first part of this text, I think, is a call simply to a sober self-assessment, an accurate self-assessment. And then the next thing that Paul does, and I want you to notice how this text flows. So you have this discussion of, of, of having sober judgment in light of the fact that you're in Christ because of God's work by the Spirit. And then he uses the word for, which is to show a causal or rational connection between the discussion about humility and the discussion about the nature of Christ's body. He says, for just as each one of us has one body with many members... And these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many individuals, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. This is a beautiful statement. It's one that I hope you memorize. This is a text that just by virtue of going through it a number of times over the years, God has kind of etched into my mind. Here's the simple illustration. It's an analogy comparing our physical body 
to the body of Christ. Okay, so that when I, when I look at a physical body, I gain a better understanding of this picture of what it is to be part of the body of Christ. And the way that Paul explains it is, he says this, many parts forms one body. Okay, so my physical body is made up of a number of organs. I have, I, th- I think I get this right, the largest organ that your body has is its skin. All right, this morning my skin was reacting to the cold. I got in my van and drove here. I'm not usually even cold. My whole body was like shivering uh, the entire way coming here this morning. It was reacting to what was going on. I'm sure that the other parts of my body were trying to compensate and just thinking, you're going crazy. Uh, Just cold, cold. Human body is a magnificent thing. Its health, however, is dependent upon the proper function of each part. No one part of your body can survive apart from the rest of it. That's by God's design. And when God drew the church together, he took that same idea and wound it into the fabric of the church so that the strength of the church should never ride on the shoulders of any individual. That's why I I get perturbed when there are ministries named after individuals. I'm like, what's with that? That's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that we are the church, the body of Christ, and it's made up of multiple people, a number of people who help the whole church to be effective and accomplish its God-given goal. The aim, I think, of what Paul says here is mutual benefit. And the thing I want to I challenge you to think about this morning is this. How, how in your engagement with the body of Christ as a member of it, as a part of it, Are you adding mutual benefit? Are you helping your brothers and sisters in Christ? And I just ask you, just in your mind, just think, who individually or in a small group setting, have I made a difference in their life this year, 2017? Whose walk with God is stronger? Whose need for encouragement has been met By the gifting that God has given to me. Church life, by God's design, is corporate. I love the way this text says it. It says, each part belongs to all the others. That's kind of a weird statement in a culture that values individualism, isn't it? And a culture that is, is hyper about individual rights and individual values and individual expression, individual fulfillment. I run into a text that says each member belongs to all the others, that Tim Hoff and Bill Kanyuk have an organic relationship in the body of Christ. We have a mutual responsibility to support one another and to seek and to pursue and to encourage one another's health. That's the way God designed it. So that an isolated Christian is an anomaly in Scripture, is abnormal for you as a Christian to live separated from the body of Christ. I want to challenge an assumption. I want to challenge an assumption for many people that coming on Sunday morning and spectating is tantamount to belonging to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I think we have to move out of the individualistic perspective that haunts the church because it's part of the culture that we live in. We have to move out of that into a, into a broader understanding of what the church is. It, is a, it is. it is a community. It is a body. It is described in the Bible as a family. And I think Paul's concern is that we tend to bring an individualistic approach to the church. He confronts it, and then he gives us an analogy to help us understand it. 
Our culture is uh, increasingly individualistic. We're not immune to it. One of, the, one of the manifestations of that, I think, of going over a topic of marriage with the teenagers in Sunday school this morning, the idea of dating and all the various pressures and things that come with that in our day. And I, I realized that in our day, uh, in the context of relationships, particularly in the context of marital relationships or dating relationships, there is a rise in something that's called cohabitation. Okay? Uh, people living together before they're married, wanting the benefits of marriage while not being willing to commit to what it means to be together. And I think it is having a devastating effect on the understanding of marriage in our culture. It's symptomatic of an individualistic culture that distorts and undervalues the covenant of marriage itself. And I think the same mindset is present in the body of Christ. Where we, we have a loose connection with the body of Christ, not a vital connection. You know, as a church family, we argue from the Bible on the broader picture, especially from a text like this, that God is in the business of changing lives through vital relationships. And vital relationships are relationships that are life-giving. They're, they're relationships that are driven by a commitment to desire to see my brothers and sisters in Christ grow and become everything that God intends for them to be. Sadly, most of us want the benefits of being part of a church but don't want to give of ourselves. And I think it's why if I hark back to Romans 12, 1, when Paul starts this discussion, applying the biblical truth of the gospel to our daily lives, he says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. And I think what Paul is aiming for the death of is not of our physical life, but of our individualistic life. That in light of the gospel, we should be driven by the free grace of God that was poured out for us through a selfless Savior. We should be driven to be self-sacrificing and committed to our church relationships. Not fickle, not waiting to be offended and blow it off. You know, I, I thank God for people in our church that are honest. I had a brother in Christ talk to me last Sunday. Just shared a burden that was on his heart. Uh, a, a, a shortfall on my part. And... You know, does, does my flesh say, you know what, it feels great to be rebuked? <laughs> Hit me again. No. That's not, that's not my response. My initial response always, in, just in my own heart as I process that, that kind of correction and that kind of encouragement or just thought from a brother in Christ, my first response is not always godly. I thought about this this week and thinking about how we can more effectively, how I can more effectively serve the body of Christ here. And I thank God, because that person's statement can make all of us better through mutual understanding and a loving word. It's interesting to me that as you look at uh, nature, you find this idea of community uh, in interesting places. If you've ever studied sequoia trees, all right, they're the largest trees in the world. They're typically... Well, I think they estimate 18 to 2,600 years old, the largest ones. They can reach a height of 300 feet, average ones 260 feet high. But here's the interesting fact about sequoias. If you go on a map and look up the location of sequoia trees in the United States, you'll find they're on, I think, what's called the Sierra Nevada Ridge in California. Here's what you'll see. You will always find that those trees are in groves or clusters because they by proximity to one another, are strengthened. 
and the ones that tend to survive for a couple thousand years, for millennia, are ones that are close in proximity to one another. The root beds enmeshed with one another. The wind is deflected by the team. And something that couldn't emerge independently emerges and becomes a national park that people go to see. And I think of the church. Here's what I think. I think we are often so separate and so individual that what God wants to do through us is not seen. Because we're not in groves together. We're not enjoying life together. Because we are so darn individualistic in our perspective. And I confess that to you. And I pray that God will allow us as a church family to become more and more devoted to life together so that we can together achieve the things that God wants us to achieve. Because if I achieve things individualistic, my downfall will always be pride. But when it happens together, there is this corporate celebration of what God has done that brings glory to his name and captures the eye of a watching world. People will come to see Sequoia trees. And I believe that God wants to raise up in the chapel of Warren Valley something that is beautiful, that is amazing, where we understand that all of this that we are seeking to do can only be done for the glory of God when it is done together. May God help us as a church family to kill individualism in our lives, to say, God, put that to death, and help me to be a, a great commandment Christian, loving God and loving my neighbor as myself. Wanting the best, wanting the success of those that you have planted around me as we stand together against the storms that come. And our culture membership is a way that we express commitment and belonging to each other. And one of the things I want to encourage you to do this morning, if you've never become a member of a church family, I want to encourage you to consider becoming a member of the chapel at Warren Valley. If God's called you to this church, you know it's where he wants you to serve, I'm going to encourage you, there's a sign-up sheet on the table outside. I'm going to encourage you after the service to go. Sign up and say, I want to take the membership seminar. I want to make a commitment to being part of this church family with the understanding that getting my name on a list does not make me a member in the sense that Paul is talking about here. Okay, what makes me a member of Christ's body is not putting my name on a piece of paper. What makes me a member of Christ's body is self-sacrifice for the benefit of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And may God help us, help us to recapture the value of the analogy that we are the body of Christ and members of it in particular. The application of the text comes in verses 6 through 8. And here's the way this, this belonging, each member belongs to all the others, end of verse 5, rolls into a very clear statement. We have different gifts. Okay, no, so what do I have? I have unity in the body, and then I have different gifts, which is diversity. Same is true of the physical body, right? I have a body, but I have individual parts and members that make it up. And all of those parts working together in sync, in unison corporately is what makes a body healthy and not disabled. Now, in the body of Christ, what makes a church healthy? What makes a church healthy is when every individual Christian is seeking to discern and know their place in the body of Christ and is stepping up and saying, I want God to use me in the way that he has gifted me. 
And so this passage of Scripture goes into a list of spiritual gifts. I want you to, if you look at it, I think there's seven gifts listed here. Let me just give you this understanding of how this corporate nature of the church is strengthened. Okay? So he gives a variety of gifts. That's one thing that becomes clear from the text. Here's what I want you to notice. The list is, in this context, representative, not exhaustive. Each gift in the list is to be valued. We have a tendency in the context of church life to value visible gifts. People say this to me, and I'm sure to other members of the pastoral team all the time. I wish you had been there in this setting because you could have helped. My response always is God put you in that setting and gifted you to handle that circumstance for his glory. Don't ever think that we are essential to your spiritual success. We have a God-given role. Paul had a God-given role. By the grace of God, as an apostle, to speak to the early church. That was his role, and he says, I'm doing that. But what he's saying to the church is, you each also have roles that God has given you. And sometimes that role is going to be found in a list. Sometimes it's going to be, in a, in, in, in a sense, in, a, in almost a mashup of those gifts that appears in different ways at different times that God is working. But the thrust of the text is this. We have different gifts, all of us. And if I'm to read through the broader picture of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 3, the understanding clearly is that every believer is empowered by God with a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, not for individualistic benefit, not to get exalted. And if you were to study the other passages in the New Testament, talk about spiritual gifts, you're going to find on a regular basis that the thing that Paul is always fighting against is the desire for visible gifts and prominence. And Paul kills that desire, that individualism, and calls us to rise up in a list of, 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 a, of a broad array of gifts that make the body healthy. And so the question is, what are the gifts that God has given you? They are, those gifts that you are given by God are spirit-driven abilities and enablements that are for the common good. The focus of spiritual gifts, of divine enablements, divine design... God's aim through that is mutual benefit. He doesn't give you a gift so that you can feel better about yourself or more significant or have more esteem. He gives it to you for mutual benefit. So if I take the gift I have and I stick it in a napkin, as the, as the gospel say, and I bury it in the ground, I dishonor the giver of the gift. You know what God wants you to do? He wants you to take your gift, unpack it, and unleash it for the glory of God. So that the church you live in and are called to, the local body, can become healthy and fully functional and do everything that God intends for it to do. And I think as I read through this list, I, I, if your gift is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's giving encouragement, give encouragement. If it's leading, do it diligently. If it's showing mercy, do it cheerfully. Here's what I start to find rising. There is an enthusiasm about spiritual gifts that Paul has because he understands as we begin to serve and minister to one another, beautiful things will begin to happen. And this is the the, 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 the powerful thrust and, I believe, aim of this text. Ed Welch puts it in this way. He says, in the context of church life, we need to come to the understanding before God that as members of the body of Christ, we are needy and needed. Okay, and I want you to think about that. In the context of Christ's body, we are, by definition, needy. So I need the assistance of Bill Kanick in my life. I need the assistance of my brothers and sisters in my life. 
but I am also needed. That's why being a spectator on Sunday mornings is not the essence of what it is to be part of the church. God has called you to get involved, to pour your life out, to find your place, to serve. There are many ways in our church family that you can do that, through the connections team, through the child care ministry. None of these ministries should ever be lacking in the need for helpers. Shouldn't be the case. Why? We're the body of Christ. We have a mutual concern and a mutual self-interest in seeing ourselves succeed so that God can be glorified. That's the nature of church. In the last seven to eight months, we've had a family come to our church who, who, I'll just say it in this way, they get it. They came, and when they came, they just started getting involved. When there was a need at the building to sweep floors, they showed up. Never asked them, ever. This made me really curious. <laughs> I thought, what kind of people are these? That for no personal benefit, connect vitally to the body of Christ, begin asking about people that are being prayed for and how they're doing, obviously committed to the mutual support and mutual benefit of the body of Christ. Just I say in my heart, God, raise up a vast tribe of people like that in our church who aren't so caught up in their personal world that they have no time for your world, the body of Christ. May God just put on us a fresh burden, a fresh understanding. May he mow the grass of our hearts in regards to understanding of the body of Christ, that we see that we are needy people. I need the ministry of individuals in this church family. And what amazes me is that God says there are people that need my assistance and help too. Folks, that should humble us. But it should also cause us to get out of bed with a purpose, get out of bed with a mission, a vision, because individualistic living will cause depression and all kinds of bad things. But a life focused on others will be glorious. As I think about this, and I, I, I think about parents, I think about family, And I, I think about the pressures that people have in our day with their children. And I think about prioritizing the body of Christ in our church life. And I want to say to moms and dads, you set the pace. Your lifestyle, your connection to the body of Christ says to your children, the church is valuable and vital for your future. Or you say it's irrelevant. Folks, we, we need to talk about commitment. This text says you have gifts that should cause you to want to be committed to what God is doing in your local church, and so do I. And I want to challenge you as parents, when you think about the culture you live in where good parents are busy parents that keep their kids overly busy and involved, often too busy, I would argue, we need to remember that there is much out there that competes for our attention. We only have so much bandwidth. And I hope that as you raise your kids, you are communicating to them by your actions and your words the incredible value of the body of Christ. I hope you are encouraging them to be committed to this local manifestation of what God is doing where you live. In conclusion, let me just say this. 
The reason that I am often disinterested in others is that I am often too interested in myself. Selfless service that captures the attention of a needy and watching world is driven by the gospel of God's amazing grace. And I think as Paul begins this text, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I plead with you on the basis of God's mercy to present yourselves to God a living sacrifice. And I think the thrust of this text is that when you understand the fullness of the salvation, the mercy of God that has come in and rescued your soul and changed your life forever, when you understand the full weight of that, it will begin to change your view of the church. It will begin to change your view of your personal life and will begin to cause you to pour your life out for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. The only thing that will unleash that kind of selfless service is an overwhelmed sense of gratitude. Paul says, I urge you in light of God's mercies that are made clear in Romans 1 through 11 to give yourselves to God. And interestingly to me, he ties that giving of self to ministry in the local church. That's the connection. I, I, there are a few people in our church that I've talked to about church life. And I love when somebody says to me, hey, look, from the time I became a Christian, I was devoted to the local church. I realized that God wanted it to be a priority. I, wanted, I realized that he wanted it to be an important, uh, vital part of my life. I thank God for people like that. That's what makes a church strong. And sometimes we need to go to God and say, God, I, I want you to confront my tendency towards selfishness or being individualistic. Today, God, I want to begin to imagine a church where needs are met because we realize as family that we are members of the same body. Because here's what I believe that would do. If people came into the chapel at Warren Valley as a church family and began to taste something of a unique fellowship, of a unique harmony, of a mutual support of needy and needed, if they began to taste that and sense that, I believe they would get a view of heaven. I believe they would begin to see the work of God in a very powerful, clear, and glorious way that would begin to make a difference in our lives. We are the body of Christ. We are an outpost of heaven. Offering hope to a needy, troubled, hurting, and restless world. We are the body of Christ. And we are called to represent him together. May God help us as we go into the new year to think through prayerfully and very carefully. Because I, I thought about this sermon a lot. I thought there were a lot of things that I could say that would be confrontive and hard. I just sense that God wanted me to say... Imagine what God would do if we all began to take more seriously what it means to be the body of Christ and members of it individually, parts of it, needy and needed, so that a watching world would see what they're looking for and come and find a relationship with Christ because we are vitalized. We are healthy as the body of Christ making a difference in our community for his glory. All of that driven by our fundamental commitment to the gospel of God's grace, which is the mercy of God towards sinners like you and I. So if you've never trusted him, if you, if you say, look, Pastor Tim, I've been coming, I've been learning, I, I'm not part of the body of Christ yet, 
but I believe that God is calling me to trust in Jesus and to turn from my sin and to have him become my Savior and Lord of my life. I want to beg of you today, perhaps to come. Maybe you would kneel at this altar during a closing song and say, God, today I am turning my life over to you. I understand that I am a sinner in need of amazing grace, and I want to trust in what Christ has completely done today. And if you know Christ, maybe, maybe you need to go to God and say, God, the self-centeredness of my heart is overwhelming. My individualistic tendencies are rampant. And I want you, by the Spirit, with your truth, to confront them and change me and free me to be a servant of others in the body of Christ. Father, I pray that your word this morning would strike deeply into our hearts, not because of how it's presented, but because it is true. Father, there are some here this morning who may, may simply need to say, you know what, I need to make a commitment to this church family and become a member at the chapel at Warren Valley. Perhaps, Lord, there are members here this morning whose name's on the list, but just been on the sidelines a little bit spectating. And maybe, God, today you would touch the heart and cause them to realize, I need to be committed. And perhaps, Lord, there's someone here this morning who does not yet know Christ personally. Father, I pray that they would realize that there is for every sinner amazing grace, hope, and salvation through the blood of Christ. And Father, I pray this morning you might give them courage to perhaps walk to the front and say, Pastor Tim, today, today, I am trusting in a glorious Savior. I want to be part of his body. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.